0: All right, welcome back to another Shifting Schools. We have a great episode for you here today, where we're going to be talking to the author of the book, Conferring in the Math Classroom, a practical guidebook to using five-minute conferencing to grow confident mathematicians. Trisha, tell us a little bit more about today's guest.
1: Today's guest is Dr. Gina Piha who has been, over the past 15 years, working as a classroom teacher, instructional coach, curriculum specialist, and district math Coordinator. Gina is passionate about providing elementary students with daily opportunities to engage as mathematicians by exploring, making conjectures, and sharing ideas in ways that reinforce their status as valued members of a math community. In this episode, we dig into what she means by math community, um, as well as just the heaps of practical advice that's within her book. And Jeff, we even kind of go deep into like, what is the point of math? So um, kind of like a big esoteric and practical conversation all at, at once. What for you was sort of the big shifted thought that you left our conversation with?
0: I think the the big one for me is just the power of conversations with kids. And I think I keep coming back to this idea of, you know, why, why, what did we miss when we were in the pandemic? Why do we want to be back face to face? And a huge part of it is, is we're, we're social beings. We want our classrooms to be social. We want them to be loud. We talk about this in the podcast, Tricia, where you're like, in our day in the math class, it was basically do the odds or the even numbers, everybody be quiet and do your math and it's right or wrong answer. And what we're moving towards is this idea is this this hum of the classroom. And every educator knows that perfect hum where kids are talking and there's laughter and there's struggle and and it's not quiet. And I think that's really what we're talking about today is, is using... Uh, using the book, using some of these ideas of how do we get that in our math classroom? How do we use conferencing as a way to get kids to talk? How are we conversing with students? What are some uh, stems and and some sentence starters that we can use in our math classrooms to support kids in actually talking in math and changing that mindset of what is the purpose of math? Like, what is it really other than making sure you've got the right answer? There's way more to math than making sure you have the right answer. And that's really what I I kind of took away from today. It's like, I want my classroom to hum. I don't want it to be quiet, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, she really reminds us of the huge value there is in curiosity. So I think folks, you'll find as you're listening, just this constant reminder of how am I helping my students, regardless of what you're teaching, how am I helping them to get more curious about their own ideas, their own thought processes. And why is that necessary, right? If we want students who are going to go out into the world and be confident thinkers, problem solvers, they need to be rehearsing that now. So I think this is a great conversation. Loved learning more about her book and also just that push, as you were saying, Jeff, to really value conversation as community building and as a critical practice.
0: Yeah, it's such a great interview. Um, I'm excited to get over to it, but before we do that, a quick word from today's show sponsors. Via from Mackin is a free digital content management system offering more than 3 million digital titles, including ebooks, audiobooks, read-alongs, databases, and videos. To date, this highly sought after digital content management system has been awarded 20 distinctive national honors, including multiple best of show awards at ISTE, several awards of excellence by Tech and Learning, and product of the year by Modern Library Awards. Today, Mac and Via can be found in thousands of schools and accessed by more than 9 million students around the world. To see what Macinvia can do for you, visit Macinvia.com today. That's M-A-C-K-I-N-V-I-A.com, and set up your free account. And a reminder that you can save $50 on registration at the upcoming NCCE conference here in the state of Washington, March 21st through 23rd, by using the code Shifting Schools 50. That's all one word shifting, schools, and the number 50. We will also be recording a live Shifting Schools podcast with anyone who wants to join us in room 406 at 2 p.m. on March 23rd. Thank you to NCCE for sponsoring Shifting Schools and giving us a space to record an episode live. If you have a conference or workshop that you would like to promote on the podcast, please reach out to us at infoshiftingschools.com. All right. And with that... We're headed over to the interview with the author of Conferring in the Math Classroom, a practical guidebook to using five minute conferencing to grow confidence mathematicians. Really written for the K 5 teacher, but I'm pretty sure everybody's gonna be taking something away. It's all about conferencing and getting kids to talk in the classroom. And with that, on with the show.
1: We are so excited to be sitting here today with Dr. Piha, who has a great book out. Um, folks who I think are big believers in the power of check-ins, one-to-one conversations with learners. This is a great book. Um, and, you know, you, you kind of remind us that The idea of uh, having a conference with students is something that many literacy professionals are familiar with, but really it's a practice that works across all subject areas. So so thank you for joining us to discuss the many rich ideas inside your brand new book that's entitled Conferring in the Math Classroom, a Practical Guidebook to Using Five-Minute Conferences to Grow Confident Mathematicians. The book takes us through ways that teachers in kindergarten through fifth grade, and I would even say like beyond there, um, can leverage the power of conferences. You outline very early on that there are three essential elements of a math conference. Number one, listening and observing. Number two, naming students' strengths. And lastly, number three, encouraging students to share. You talk about how these conferences are very brief, which is great because, um, you know, using time is always a, one of the complicated things that teachers need to juggle. Can you talk about how these short conferences help students work on their math identity?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, so I when I um, talk about math conferences, a, a phrase or a word that I often um, talk about are hidden regularities in, in, in terms of our classrooms. And so those are sort of the things that aren't spoken, that students get used to, um, that students are doing each daily Um, doing each day daily as mathematicians. And I think conferring really supports some of those hidden regularities that we would want for our classrooms. Um, And one of the things that we would want um, is students believing in themselves as mathematicians and students having what we would call positive math identity. And so when I think about a math identity, I'm thinking in terms of um, certainly a student's belief about their ability to do math, but also uh, their feelings and beliefs about what the subject of math is. So are they thinking of math as a series of steps that are disconnected that they have to memorize and follow? Or are they thinking of math um, in a connected way, thinking about how different things they've learned are connected, and also thinking about math as um, creative, a subject in where they have um, choice in the way that they do things and that they can invent things um, and think outside the box. And so I think conferring is a structure that could help Um, bring about some of those hidden regularities into our classroom to where students are um, having opportunities um, that are regular enough that it's affecting their math identities in positive ways. Um, And so when we're conferring with students, um, although they're really short, they're really purposeful. And students are doing the thinking work. They're doing the talking work. Um, They're sharing. They're encouraged to share. And I think one of the the most important things about a math conference is the um, way in which students' strengths are being highlighted on a daily basis, um, not just for them, but for their peers as well. So we're developing this culture in which we see one another um, as important members of a math community. And we're seeing on a daily basis that we can learn um, from each and every person in this classroom and that together we're we're building our collective understanding um, of mathematics.
0: I really like that, and, and you know, being a fourth grade teacher, I think there's a lot. I love this idea of growing your math identity. Um, I could just see myself as a fourth grade teacher using that, using those words uh, in my classroom as well. One of the things I found really interesting, you know, through the book was that you use the word nudge a lot, um, and you you're constantly kind of talking about what are the nudges we can do. Can you maybe explain a little more about nudging? And perhaps give uh, our listeners an example of what would that look like in action.
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, so you had brought up the idea that sometimes when we think of conferences, we're thinking of literacy conferences. Mm. And for listeners who might be uh, experienced with that, they might know that in a literacy conference, oftentimes there's a direct teaching point that happens. Not all the time, but a lot of the times. And in you know because the content pedagogy around literacy is different than it is with math. Um, When we're conferring with readers and writers and we give a very direct teaching point, it often doesn't take the creativity away from them. The piece that they're creating will still likely be different than their peers, most certainly. Um, And they still have a lot of creative decision-making left to make. So in a math conference, then what do we do if we're not wanting to come in and like stamp this sort of teaching point, or you should do this or try this? So instead... We want to nudge students forward in their thinking, and we can do this in a couple of ways. We can nudge them um, in ways that stay within the task that they're working on. So nudging them to think deeply about the math that's within the context that's already in the problem that they're working on or the task that they're working on. Um, We could also nudge them to think deeply about the concept in general, which would be nudging them to make generalizations, really getting under the math. How does this work? Why does this work? When does this work? Um, And so that's what that nudging work sounds like. So for example, um, if I'm working with some students and maybe they are um, doing a task in which they're comparing um, unit fractions, um, and maybe the students that I'm working with are using a really abstract representation, maybe they put some fractions on a number line. Um, One way that I might wanna nudge their thinking is to really make connections between representations. Um, so I might nudge them to think about different ways that they could be, be representing those unit fractions and nudging them to share within the community. So that, that nudge is often combined with an invitation to share, whether it's at the community share or just with others around you, what are some other ways of thinking about this? What are some other ways of representing this? Um, you know, if, if we're looking at a strategy rather than representation, how is your strategy similar or different than others that are working on the same thing? Um, and a nudge to think beyond the task would be um, asking questions like, does this work all the time? When does this work? I see you did this with whole numbers. Do you think that that works with rational numbers? Things like that. And those and those nudges, students are nudged um, to really come up with their own problems and sort of test things out and develop their own understanding and share out that understanding about how this thing works. Now, we're doing this one problem, but where else does this work? How does this work and when does it not work?
1: What I appreciate about that, and again, I'll point out in the book, you have so many different sort of question examples for teachers to play around with inside of these conferences, and I left the book really with the idea that a math lesson is a wonderful space for curiosity, right? And instead of, you know, I'm going back to perhaps my own childhood and thinking about how there really wasn't space for curiosity. It was very much like a polarized right or wrong, and that's it. I cannot really remember being asked, you know, like you were just saying, like, does this work all the time or just some of the time, or, you know, even just the the, the broader idea of, you know tell me why that's the way that you approach this question it, it was really not any kind of um interest in terms of how I, what my journey was as a mathematician really just sort of the hey what does the answer key say and if it's not that try again um and i think with many things in education if we're fostering that curiosity as a stance uh you know belonging is is also achieved i'm thinking you know dr piha just about the idea that You know, you go through a lot of the advantages in terms of helping students see themselves as mathematicians, but even just that relational piece of teacher and child getting to know one another, that comes through when we're having these regular check ins as well. Um, And something that I I just absolutely adore about the book is that you remind us that when we invite students to share, it's not, hey, just share it with me, the teacher, I'm the Mm -hmm. only person in the room that matters, but it's about building a math community as a class. So your book goes deep into what that means, why it matters. Can you describe for listeners what we would see, sense, feel, or hear inside of a strong math community?
2: Sure. Um, when, I, when I hear the words math community um, or that phrase, it's something that I've heard throughout my career and it's something that I, I said very early on you know, something maybe that I thought I should say in our classroom or math community. But what does that mean? Um, And I don't know that. Well, I know for sure. Early on in my career, I probably couldn't have explained, like, how is a math community of learners, when you say that that's what the classroom is, how is that different from a classroom of students um, who are doing math? Um, So one of the things at some point in my career that really kind of Interested me slash bothered me was this idea that we're we're constantly telling students during literacy time that we want to engage like your writers. This is a real writers workshop and we're gonna go through those motions as real writers. Um, But then it felt like sometimes in math it was a different type of math, maybe, than real mathematicians would be doing. Um, So if we have a real authentic math community then I think we would expect to see kids engaging as mathematicians. And so to me, what that would what that would look like is students who are showing that they have a lot of agency in their work. They're engaged. Um, they're taking ownership of their work. They aren't um, driven by the idea that they want to complete assignments so that they can turn them in and be done. But they're driven by this by this conjecture work, by this idea of discovering things and and sharing with the math community and they're seeing um, that as you had said, the teacher is not the center of the of the math classroom and I think that that piece is so important because when we for me when I think of of a mathematician and I think about you know, as myself as a mathematician, it really wouldn't be that fun of, of of a job, of work, if there was someone behind me that already knew the answer and was like asking me directed questions, trying to get me down a path that they already had been down and thought was the best, most efficient path. It would really take the love and joy out of it for me. Um, so I think we want an environment, you know, where students are the, they see their work as grappling with the problem. And when the teacher approaches, um, we're seeing a less dependent learner and a more independent learner. We're seeing that because conferring has been happening often and in the same way, students are less likely to um, lean into the teacher to try to find out what they might might be doing next. Um, and instead, really um, engage with the teacher as the teacher is really just sitting next to me, really, truly just curious about what I'm doing. And my teacher finds what I'm doing interesting and thinks I should share my ideas with my peers. But my teacher isn't here to get me back on track or for corrective feedback. Um, I think the most exciting thing we can see when this is done over an extended period of time is kids saying, um, can I make a conjecture? Like even outside of a conference, maybe a teacher is mm-hmm. conferring with someone else and a group of kids saying, like, we have a conjecture. And like, of course, yes, that's then we know that the class that the kids really are having control of what's what's happening in the classroom and they're really engaging as a math community.
1: That's, I love that.
2: Yeah, that's fantastic advice. You know, I'm
1: wondering for some teachers who might be listening and thinking this idea of inviting regular either small group or one-to-one conferences For those who are listening and are thinking, this is a really huge shift in my practice. This is not necessarily the way that I've taught. Um, I'm wondering if you just have any like logistical tips. You know, I, you have so many great question stems in the book. I was even thinking, you know, the power of me having some of them printed out, having them like around the room, making them visible. So I'm not feeling this like, False sense of pressure. Like, remember all of Doctor Piha's questions, right? Um, Do you have any just logistical strategies for someone who is digging into your book? They love the idea of spending more one-to-one, short, you know, conference time with students. What are some things that you think might make that that pivot or that shift just a little bit easier?
2: Well, first, from a a broader sense, just sort of tackling like how it feels to start something new. I think one of like the analogies that I love, maybe because just for me, this was an issue for me, but the idea of like working out and going to a gym, I don't know how to use anything there. I'm going to fumble. Everyone around me is going to know that I don't, I've never even lifted a weight. And seeing something once that said, just go and get on the treadmill and start walking. Like that's your only goal at first. Just show up and do this one thing that you can do. And so I think that that really transfers to the classroom because I've often felt like that a lot in my career. Like there's, there's a lot of things that we're asked to do sometimes, especially if we teach every subject and you're asking me to to remember a lot of different things um, and different protocols. And so my advice would be just take that first step of saying when my, when my kids are problem solving tomorrow, I'm going to pull up alongside a group and I'm just going to listen and I'm just going to do the beginning part of the conference. I'm just going to listen in, notice and observe, and just ask some of those very natural questions. Why did you do that? First, what are you working on? And then I noticed you did this. Why did you do that? Um, One of the things that was really important to me when writing the book was that while I wanted to provide a lot of useful questions and if-then charts and things like that. I never wanted anyone to feel like I have to remember all these things or I have to have like this binder with me to remember what to do. So another strategy I would have is always think about the goal and the question that you're asking. Um, If your question is to find out more about uncovering their thinking, then asking them just questions, very natural questions. Tell me more about what you're working on. Um, I find sometimes that when we get astray, it's because we aren't remembering the goal. So when we start to ask questions where we're kind of funneling, reminding ourselves, is our goal to get them to answer this problem correctly right now? Is that why I'm asking questions? Or is my goal right now to really understand their thinking and see where I can nudge them? Um, Ideally, conferring would be a regular practice, but I don't think that that's a commitment that anyone needs to make um, in the beginning. So really just starting out with, I'm going to make the goal of just conferring with one group tomorrow. Um, And I'm going to see how that goes. And maybe then I'll do two groups. Um, The lovely thing about this, uh, speaking from someone who's felt definitely the pressure and stresses of being a classroom teacher, is that the math block does not need to be arranged in order to do this. We're Mm -hmm. just working with kids when they're already engaged in problem solving. So it's really just the commitment of, hey, tomorrow I'm going to pull up alongside these kids and I'm going to listen in um, and I'm going to see what happens.
0: I love that. And it ju- I mean, listening to you, I'm just thinking about I was part of a research group back in uh, my what, pre-service elementary ed days uh, at Washington State University. I got hooked up with our math, you know, again, being an elementary teacher, you have to take every subject area, but our math, our math teacher in the elementary cohort. And I ended up getting hooked up with her and she was doing research into this idea of math talk in what were we seeing when we had students actually vocalizing math? And that's really what this is, right? Like we want to ask kids questions. We want to see what, you know, not only what they know and how do we get feedback from that, but anytime you can get kids to speak out loud about math. And the research was actually really cool. I mean, I was spending all this time down in third and fourth grade classrooms with these, you know, preset of questions because we're doing research on what is this actually leading to any... Uh, significant change. And we did. We saw significant change in at the time the first standardized testing was coming out. And that was a huge focus. Uh, and we were we were seeing standardized change in classrooms where we were having students talk math. Right. And that, I think, is at the core of this. Right? It's asking questions that get kids to talk, that are getting kids to interact with math. Uh, As a teacher, I'm constantly trying to push kids to use math vocabulary out loud. Um, So I'm always trying to ask questions of, you know, and I'm using the math terms myself as a way to engage. I'm I'm looking for kids to be using those math terms back. Uh, And I can use that also then as an assessment piece, right? Like, do kids understand when they say the word divide or they say the word add or they say fractions and numerator and denominator? Do they really know what they're talking about? And so in these conferencing techniques, you can, you know, really take the vocabulary of math and and do some even evaluation and assessment on where is this group of kids or where is this the student in, in understanding their math as well. So um, I was fortunate enough to be part of that research. And it's always been something I, I've, I've been very passionate about since Is just getting kids to talk in math. Right. Yeah, I, I just love that. So
2: I love that. And I love the additional like layer of vocabulary and, yeah. and how important that is. And And I also think sometimes that can be a struggle, right? Like we know we want kids using certain vocabulary and sometimes it's receptive, but not always productive. That's right. And um, one of the things that I think is really um, exciting is seeing a little bit of a shift when they're writing their own conjectures because mm. suddenly there's an audience. And suddenly I have a reason why I really want to be precise because I want my peers to understand. And when you know when we're sharing our conjectures and our students in the class are encouraged to kind of push back in respectful ways as mathematicians, they start to learn like, when I present this, my next conjecture, I'm going to make sure I'm very clear with what I'm saying. Um, And so there becomes a use then to refer to the word wall or to use punctuation, you know, how thinking about, that's like a really big idea, right? How do we, how do we get them to carry over the things they're working on in literacy into math? Um, And I think it's useful when they're motivated to do it.
1: Yeah. And I, I, I've also, I've often felt like, you know, (sighs) many of us, or maybe I'm dating myself here, came up in an educational system that valued compliance and silence, right? Like often if the school leader was coming around, you know, you could almost see like the nod back and forth between the teacher and the principal in terms of like, good job, they're quiet, right? (laughs) They're quiet and working and that must be a good thing. And, uh, you know, I feel like as a practitioner, then it took me A period of adjustment to realize the best learning is often happening when my classroom is really noisy, right? There's a lot of back and forth conversation. One group is then checking in with another group. um, And it's almost like this beautiful chaos. But, you know, I, I kind of wanted to ask you in closing when you were talking about teachers really thinking about what is my goal in this lesson or what is my goal in this question. You know, I, I'm a, a lit teacher, ELA teacher, and I, I think it's Matthew Kay in his book, um, "Not Light, But Fire," who reminds us. You know, we're not subject teachers. It's not I don't teach literature. I teach students who are learning about literature is a great way of framing it. And I always felt like, you know, encouraging lifelong readers and writers is not necessarily about them publishing a book. Or, you know, having the most successful run of books checked out from the library, but it is an entry point into literally like understanding the world around us, getting curious about other stories so that we can also understand our own. Math is not my expertise, but your book had me thinking about, I don't know, is, is sort of one of your more esoteric goals, this idea of students becoming competent and confident problem solvers, not necessarily so that, you know, they're they're like, you know, out there doing flashcard wars and algebraic equations all the time, but so that also when they come across a problem in life, it's sort of like I have had so many conversations about different ways to approach problems mm-hmm. that I feel like I am going to be able to come to this and it from a place not of like, oh my gosh, what do I do next? But I am an experienced problem solver. Does that sound accurate or does that sound totally off base? No,
2: absolutely. Um, Yeah. And it really, yeah, absolutely. That's the goal. And it, it, I always talk about how Lucy Calkins says for literacy that you're not teaching the piece, you're teaching the writer. And it's, I feel the same should be the goal in the math conference. We're, we're developing, we're, we're nudging them and developing them as mathematicians and answering this one problem in front of them isn't the goal. And that feels off a little bit in the beginning when when doing this work because we're in this work to teach and we love and care about students. and so it feels sometimes uncomfortable watching them grapple um, with a problem and watching them struggle. But as you said, that's what that's the end goal of what we're what we're hoping for is that when students come across, really challenging problems in their life that they're not trying to search their long-term memory for how their teacher taught them to do something and then feeling defeated when they can't find it. But I don't know how to solve this, but I know I can figure it out. And even I might, it might take me a really long time and I might do the most inefficient thing possible, but I, I am pretty confident I will be able to figure this out because I've had a lot of experiences throughout my education where that happened. So I saw that success came from, um, started from a discomfort of not knowing.
0: Mm. Yeah, And I think it's a, it's that it's getting curious with how to solve problems. Right. I mean, right to our point, I'm just thinking this, you know, last weekend we were laying some more LVP flooring, uh, out at, uh, my sister-in-law's new condo and we ripped up all the carpet and we're laying, we're getting ready to lay all this new flooring and, I grab a a T square and I go to the corner and there's not a 90 degree corner in the entire building, right? Like this happens a lot in building. So then the question becomes, well, we want to lay the flooring straight. How do you lay flooring straight when there's not a straight wall? Right? That's the question. And it's, it's a math problem, right? How do I find a straight line in a non straight space? Now, if every wall like the corners, a 90 degree wall, and I can just run the, the first row down and I know that first row is straight. Uh, But what we found is the first, even just the first row of lane was off by almost five inches from where we started to where it ended. And if we'd have just followed the wall, you know, your flooring would have just kept looking (laughs) like it was diving into the wall. And so it was really because that was the problem. And a lot of people get stuck there, right? They're just like, well, I don't know how to find a straight line. Well, yeah, you do. It's like fifth grade math. We do it again (laughs) in seventh grade math. Like there's a lot of ways to find a straight line if you have a corner. I used a three, four, five triangle. Right. I measure out three feet. I measure out fourth, four feet. I know the hypotenuse is five feet and where that, where that hits, I can draw a straight line and that became our line. Right. And I'm just thinking, man, that's not, it wasn't about knowing that what a right triangle was and what the formula was back in the day, but man, does it matter now? (laughs) Right. (laughs) How do you find a straight line? Use it all the time in building fences. Same thing. Like, how do you know that that it's, it's 90 degree in the corner when you go to like, make your fence, it's a three, four, five triangle. Contractors use it all the time. And it's so cool because you walk around sounding really smart because you know, you can remember fourth grade math. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's, uh, it's great. But to that point, right? Like it's, there's a problem. How do I solve it? And then what do, what can I lean on from my math experience and getting people, especially with math, I find, and maybe Trisha, goes back to, we came from, uh, You know, we had a running joke in my math class of, is today the even numbers in the book or the Mm -hmm. odd numbers in the book? Like we would almost Mm -hmm. have like a side bet going on if we could actually exchange money and had money, right? But getting to a place where it's just this idea of getting curious. Can you get to a place where you're curious enough, you're willing to go find the answer. You're willing to go out and try to figure it out. And what can you lean on uh, from your past to actually get over it? Because especially with math, so many people are just like, well, I just, I I don't know how to do it. You know, I would like to create a budget, but you know, I don't know how to set up an Excel spreadsheet. Well, you do, it's adding and subtracting and being able to, you know, I mean, it's just, but you have to get to a point where it's this, it's this, I don't know, what is it? It's this problem solving mindset, right? And, and, I and how love, do we engage in that math?
1: What I love though is that what we're also talking about is part of that mindset is a willingness to have conversations with others, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, not to like, you know, if any member of my family is listening to this right now, like no shade towards you, but you know, like sometimes we'll have that conversation about like, oh, there's this issue. Do we talk about it or not? And Mm. honestly, like, you know, when we're talking about the power of, of conferences, we're talking about the power of a thought partner, of exchange of ideas, of talking through the issue. Right. And I really think at a societal level, it's like that's been undervalued. But I think there is really great value in saying, I don't know the answer yet. Can you talk this through with me, right? So that I can almost like hear myself processing, have somebody else even ask me like, well, why did you make that assumption? Or, you know, again, like you've got so many great sentence question starters in the book. There's huge value in that. However, I think if we don't grow up with that as an experience, it's really easy to think like, well, what's the point of talking about X, right? Um, And of course, there's there's huge value in having that thought partner. So folks, again, the book is Conferring in the Math Classroom, a practical guidebook to using five-minute conferences to grow confident mathematicians. And I feel like on this episode, we've talked about just like confident, caring individuals as well. Um, Thank you so much, Dr. Piha, for coming on to share more about that book.
2: Thank you all for having me. This has been a great opportunity. I love um, any opportunity to talk about math ed and particularly um, talking with our kiddos.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode. Just a reminder, you can save $25 on any of our learning pathways at ShiftingSchools.com by using the code SSPOD25 at checkout. If you like today's show, or if you have something you'd like us to talk about, send us an email at info at ShiftingSchools.com. And of course, rates and reviews are always appreciated. Until next time, we'll see you on the network.